All right, well, if you will please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Acts, chapter 13. You can find that if you're using one of the red pew Bibles on page 921. This morning we'll be looking at verses 4 through 12. So Acts 13, looking at verses 4 through 12. Can I just say how much of a pleasure it is to be with you this morning? We, what we're doing here is in full, is in obedience to the calling of Christ. And we get to, it's, it brings me so much joy to hear God's people sing together and to pray and to open God's word with you. Like this is a high privilege. And I just want to praise God for that right now. As we come, I'm really excited about this passage. <laughs> There's a lot of amazing things that we get to see about the power of God and the work of God, and the victory of Christ. So my prayer this morning is that God is going to use this to give you extra courage this week to be a bold witness. God is on a mission. He created the world by the power of His Word and by the glory of His might. He has dedic- He is dedicated to magnifying the glory of his name through his ongoing work in this world. God is not absent. He is not silent. He has a purpose and a plan, and he assures us that nothing will be able to stand in the way of that purpose to undo what he has appointed to be. Not rulers, not principalities, not wars, not threats of wars, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not illness, not nakedness, not danger, not sword. Nothing. As the guarantee of his love and his sovereign purpose, God has given us a a covenant, a binding promise in his own Son, whose blood sets us free from sin and guilt. He has also given us His Holy Spirit as the seal of that guarantee who is at work in us even now to root out sin, to grow us in Christ-likeness, to guide us in all truth, and who has called us to join Him in the work of spreading the fame of King Jesus everywhere. The book of Acts teaches us to recognize this work of God in our world. It teaches us about the supremacy of Christ's work for us. It records the triumph of King Jesus over all powers. And it sends us out in the field to be at work where he has called us to go. Now last week we took a look at the way that God called on the church in Antioch to set apart Barnabas and Saul to go and do the work he had called them to do. The work of taking the gospel to new places and new people. This is the very work which Jesus prayed to the Father about in John 17, verses 17 through 19, when he said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. That is the heart of Christ for his people. And that same heart gets shown out in God's people as we get to share the good news of what Christ has done with others. 
In our passage today, Luke tells us about what happened when Saul and Barnabas submitted themselves to that will of Christ, taking the gospel where the Holy Spirit led them to go. And as they do, we see amazing things start to happen. Just like sunlight races across the landscape of the earth, chasing away the darkness of night, so the glory of Christ begins to break into new places through the faithful testimony of these two men. And while Satan tries to resist this, Luke shows us how defeated of a foe he truly is by telling us about how the Holy Spirit overcame the lies and the unbelief of one of his agents. This really is a fun passage to read. It is action-packed. It's part of why I love the book of Acts. And it's just satisfying to read this and get to see at the light of Christ triumphing over the lies and the deception of the devil. This, this is a passage that is meant to encourage us to press on in the work that God has, has called his people to do. It is a, it is a work that, it, it's a passage that shows us God's commitment to his glory. And it shows us what becomes of those who resist him in this mission he has of glorifying Christ our King. So without further ado, let's read our text. If you will, please stand with me as we read Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 4 and reading through verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, a defeated enemy is still a dangerous enemy. Uh, last week, Titus and I were reading together about Jesus in his time in the wilderness when he faced temptation uh, and, and where he defeated Satan uh, through his unwavering obedience to God. And we, we talked together about how there is a good king and there is a bad king. How Jesus is the good king who has overcome and defeated the bad king through his death and resurrection. But the power and the influence of the bad king has not yet been completely removed from him yet. 
Although he is a def- he has been defeated, Satan, we know, continues to wage a war of attrition. He will do everything in his power to oppose the mission of God and the good news of the gospel. But in the end, the Bible assures us that he will be undone, that what he means for evil, God will use for good, and that King Jesus will hold him accountable and he will make all things right. God called Saul and Barnabas to bring the gospel to a new place that was still being held in the grip of the kingdom of darkness. Knowing that Satan is never willing to give up his power and influence, it should not surprise us that they ran into opposition as they went there. But the key thing that Luke wants us to notice here is that for all that Satan did to try and upend God's purpose, he was not able to resist God's power. And in triumphing over him, we see that God not only brought light into the darkness, but the true power of Christ was shown. And so we are meant to draw confidence from this passage, confidence to hold fast to the truth, whatever resistance we encounter for it. So the main idea that I want to bring to you this morning from this passage simply is this. God is the light bringer. God is the light bringer, and it's in his light we have life. And God's mission is to bring glory to Christ by bringing salvation to sinners such as we are. He exalts Christ through his victory on the cross, and we get to be part of that as witnesses who have been called to share this good news with others. To give us confidence in that work, what I want to do in our time this morning is unpack uh, three areas we see God triumphing over the darkness. Now, it would be very easy to make this passage about Saul and Barnabas, but a closer look really points to the way the Holy Spirit works to triumph over the strategies of Satan. And so Luke teaches us about three triumphs of the Holy Spirit over the enemies of the gospel. First, we see the triumph of the spirit of truth over the spirit of deception. The spirit of truth triumphs over the spirit of deception in this passage. Second, we see the spirit of life triumphs over the spirit of death. And third, we see that the spirit of light triumphs over the spirit of darkness. So let's begin with the triumph of truth over deception. In verse 4, Luke tells us that after the Holy Spirit had sent Barnabas and Saul out of Antioch, that they went down to the port town of Seleucia. Seleucia is right there on the, um, if you're looking at the Mediterranean, uh, it's right there on the northern coast, right with Syria. It's, it's not very far away at all from Antioch. And then we're told that they sailed west to the island of Cyprus, which is about 130 miles away. Now, as they, as they came to Cyprus, they landed at the city of Salamis. Uh, Salamis was a port city that was actually very important. Uh, it was strategically located on the eastern side of Cyprus, and which put it in a really key location for shipping between uh, cities that were on the port towns of, of well, the cities that were ports along the Mediterranean trying to get things back to the Roman Empire. So it's a very important city. Although this capital of Cyprus is Paphos, which is on the very western corner, Salamis really was the most important city in Cyprus because it provided that key connection for travel and trade. So it's only natural that Barnabas and Saul would land here. 
but they did not remain there. And, and we're also told that they didn't come, uh, they didn't make this journey alone. Luke actually, he includes that John Mark traveled with them to assist them. So having landed in Salamis, they go straight to work. Uh, Luke says that they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now, Cyprus is predominantly Greek, but there was a significant Jewish population on the island. So there were multiple synagogues scattered throughout it. And as was, Paul, well, as was Saul's custom, uh, when he came to preach the gospel in a new place, he started with the Jews who were there. And, and rightly so. Uh, the Jews had an understanding of the law and the covenants. They were looking for God's promised Messiah. So Saul and Barnabas were going to the synagogues where these men and women would have gathered for worship, and they were sharing the good news with them about how God had fulfilled his promise through Jesus Christ. They were proclaiming to them how Jesus came, the miracles that he did, the works and the words that he said, the way that he was crucified for sin, the way that he rose from the dead, about his ascension and about everything that was happening and it had happened to show the power of Christ um, in Jerusalem and, and so forth. Now, I imagine that this must have been a really personal experience for Barnabas. After all, Cyprus, we're told, was, was his home. This is where he was from. So for years, Barnabas has been ministering in Jerusalem and Antioch and areas around there, but now the Holy Spirit had brought him here. And I can only think that it had to bring Barnabas a great deal of joy to get to share the good news with the people in the places where he'd grown up. Now as good as it may have felt to be back, the Holy Spirit did not allow Barnabas and Saul to kick back and get comfortable. We see that they pressed on. They were traveling from synagogue to synagogue, trying to get the word to as many people as they could until they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, which is where things really start to get interesting. In verse 6, Luke says that there was, there was, it was here at Paphos that Barnabas and Saul came upon a certain magician. A really, I think it would be more accurate to refer to this guy. He's really a sorcerer. Uh, when we say magician, we think of an illusionist. This is a guy who's practicing witchcraft. He's, he's doing things. They, they had amulets, magic amulets that they would give you to ward off evil spirits. You came to him if you wanted someone, if you wanted your neighbor, if you wanted his cat to die, you go get him to curse them, things like that, okay? This is not a good guy. This is not an illusionist. He's more of a sorcerer. And we're told that his name was Bar-Jesus. Now, given that Cyprus is pretty much, it's, it's a, it's, it's a pagan-dominated culture, it's not terribly, this is not something that we would be unexpected, I think, at all. But what is unexpected about this is that Luke tells us that this man was a Jew, God, if you, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know God expressly condemns the practice of magic and sorcery in the law. It is marked as a high crime against God. Someone who practiced fortune-telling, sorcery, anything like this, was to be punished by death. But what the law said about this didn't seem to have bothered this man at all. And clearly, he had found a way to profit off of this by selling what he could do to others. Now, Cyprus was an island that was, that was really caught in the grip of paganism. Um, from the, the, doing some little research on it, it was, it was pretty popular to worship Venus there. Uh, and there were a lot of things that came along with that. So magicians and sorcerers like Bar-Jesus 
thrived in places like this, and they passed themselves off as having power over situations and over people. Uh, they were feared as being the sort of as being able to curse people. And it seems that Bar Jesus had managed to work his way even into the court of the proconsul of the island, a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. Now, a, a proconsul is basically a reigning, governing official. They are directly appointed by the Senate in Rome. So this is not a small guy. This is someone who's well-known, very, uh, very strategic, uh, not just in Cyprus, but back in the Roman Empire, back in Rome itself. So this man has managed to weasel his way into the council of someone who is well-respected, who, um, who has a lot of authority, and is expected to rule accordingly. Luke actually goes so far as to call Bar-Jesus a false prophet. And what I take that to mean is that he was using his background as a Jew to try and fool Sergius and others that he had some extra insight or power. He spoke claiming to have the words of God. But in reality, he was peddling a lie. In fact, there's really nothing about this guy that's true at all. Ethnically, he may have been Jewish, but he had broken God's law through his use of magic. And, and he had tried to pass himself off as a prophet of God when in truth, Luke says, he was false. He spoke false words. Uh, Luke says that he went by the name Bar-Jesus, which translates to son of Jesus, meaning something like to be worthy. So that's, that's what he wants people to call him. His other name, Elimus, meant sorcerer or magician or fortune teller. So either way, he is known publicly for his craft. He had sold his soul to try and get power and influence for himself. So you can imagine he had a lot to lose when Barnabas and Saul came to Cyprus, when they came proclaiming the true word of God. And it's no wonder he reacted the way that he did when Sergius wanted to hear what they had to say too. In verses 7 and 8, Luke tells us that when Sergius summoned Barnabas and Saul to appear before him, seeking to hear the word of God, Elimus immediately opposed them, doing everything in his power to try and turn Sergius away from the faith. He may have claimed to be a prophet, but the reality was that he was an enemy of God and an enemy of the gospel, a prideful pawn who was caught up in Satan's scheme to actively oppose God and the truth of the gospel. Now, I, can't, I can't help but wonder, we're not told anything about this, but I can't help but wonder how long Elimus had managed to hold the ear of Sergius Paulus. Uh, given what Luke says in verse 7, he was already with Sergius when he had decided to summon Barnabas and Saul to come and speak to him about the word of God. So I'm inclined to think that he was doing this for a while. And I have to ask, how much damage happened because of Elimus's lies? How much carnage had he managed to create in the court with his deception? But the spirit of deception who lived in Elimus was no match for the Holy Spirit who was in Barnabas and Saul. And the darkness cast by his spell of influence crumbled before the true light of the true Jesus. In verse 9, Luke says that as Elimus opposed Barnabas and Saul, Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
Now he goes on, but I just want to stop there for just a second. These are not small words. These are judgments. These are judgments exposing Elimus for the enemy that he was. Paul calls Elimus a son of the devil, which is to say that his actions showed who his true master was. This is very similar to what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders who were opposing him in John 8 when he told them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I think Paul is well within his rights to identify Elimus as such. He's passing himself off as something that he's not. And he's doing damage in the name of God to the name of God. In 2 Corinthians 11, we're told that Satan will disguise himself as an angel of light. And that is exactly what Elimus had tried to do. He was trying to pass himself off as a prophet. But when the gospel came to Cyprus, his deception was exposed. As we look at this passage, it's important for us to recognize the role that the Holy Spirit played in guiding Paul to say these things. Luke says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and as such, he was filled with a holy zeal for truth. Paul spoke this way because Elimus was obstinately opposing the truth and the will of God. It was appropriate in the moment. Paul spoke in obedience as he was led. And as he did, the truth of the gospel prevailed over the lies of Satan. Now, Paul had a reputation in the early church as being a pretty fiery guy. If if you've ever read Paul's letters, I think you'll agree with that. I mean, if you were going to be in a street fight, you'd probably choose Paul to go with you over Barnabas the encourager. But the key point that I really want to make here is that Paul's personality is not what carried the day against the deception of Satan. It was the Holy Spirit wielding the truth of the gospel. Christians are called to be truth seekers and truth speakers. We long with the psalmist when he cries out against the oppression of lies and says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. We, we long and we love, we long for, and we love truth. Because God is true, and His words are true. It's in that truth that we have light and life. As followers of Christ, we must be faithful to always speak the truth. We must be faithful to speak the gospel. It's the light of the light of Christ. It's the light of the life of Christ that brings understanding and faith and love and obedience. We live in a world that questions whether or not truth even exists or whether we can even access it. And we, as followers of Christ, have been given a message to, sh- to share with others, a message of truth to shine light into people's lives, to dispel the lies and the false wisdom of Satan, setting the captive free. So there really are two things I want to say from this. First, 
Be faithful to speak the truth and to stand for the truth. Don't be afraid to speak. The Holy Spirit who spoke through Paul is the same Spirit who has been given to all believers in Christ to equip us for the task that he's called us to do. It can be intimidating to stand up to someone who is spreading lies. We can question ourselves. We can run through all sorts of scenarios. What if I don't, what if they say this and I don't have a good answer? The fact of the matter is that Jesus promises us that God will give us wisdom and the words to speak in the moment. You don't have to be the brightest apologist. You don't have to be the world's foremost theologian. You just have to speak the truth. God will do the rest. But the second thing I want to say with this is that as you speak the truth, don't confuse the passions of the flesh for the passions of the Holy Spirit. It can be difficult sometimes for us to distinguish between holy anger and fits of fleshly rage. I think it's easy to look at a passage like this and to see Paul with this fire in his eyes and want to go start flipping tables with, you know, and, and joining in that anger. Paul used some strong words here, and he used them to reveal alignments for what he was. Luke makes it clear that he acted upon the leading of the Holy Spirit, something that shows us, really, I think, just how passionate God is about truth. But as tempting as it may be to want to use this, or to read this, and then to want to rush into battles with people and start knocking heads together, we, we need to be careful to make sure we are always aligning our hearts with the heart of Christ. Calvin points out very wisely that godly teachers must take much more heed to make sure they are not trying to pass off the, the affections of the flesh for a holy zeal. That we must not break out with headlong and unseasonable heat where there is still place for moderation. I think those are wise words. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us, I think, in a place of confidence. To know that the truth of the gospel will always prevail over the lies of the devil. It puts us in a place where we don't have to trust in our own abilities to get results. But rather in a place where we can take care to speak the truth with appropriate passion and zeal. With compassion because the people we speak to as we're dressing these, these lies and deceptions, we would be there but for the grace of God. It puts us in a place to speak the truth in faith that the enemies of the gospel will in fact be made to kneel before the throne of Christ. And that brings us, I think, to consider our second point, which is the spirit of life triumphing over the spirit of death. Now you may have noticed in verse 9 that Luke switches from Saul's given Hebrew name to his Greek name, Paul. And from that point on, that's how he's going to continue to refer to him for the rest of this book. Now contrary to a very popular misconception, Jesus didn't change Saul's name to Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, but as you get to know him, it's actually a very fitting title. Paul means little. And the reason I think that's so fitting is because when you look at Paul's life, it was characterized by a desire to always make much of Jesus over himself. So whereas Bar-Jesus tried to make himself out to be someone, Paul's life was about drawing attention to the glory of the true Jesus, even going so far as to, as to say he would boast in his own weakness so that others would see the power of Christ. 
And Luke doesn't give us a, a word-for-word account of what exactly Paul and Barnabas said to Sergius, but we know that they spoke the gospel to him, and we know that they told him about Jesus, how he lived in perfect obedience to the Father, how he performed many signs and miracles, showing that he was the Christ, how he was betrayed, crucified, buried, and how he rose from the dead. Uh, they told him the same gospel. I expect they had been preaching all over the, the, the island of, of Cyprus. Up until this point, we've really been looking at how the gospel dispels the lies of Satan. But even as we do, it's important for us to recognize how the truth of the gospel leads us out of death and into life. Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Bible uses lots of different images to teach us about the gospel. Light is one. We're going to get into that in a second. Life is another. Light reveals truth. It dispels darkness. As such, the Bible talks about how this light brings us life. The gospel is truth that affects us. The gospel is not just facts. It's truth that leads us somewhere. It leads us to life through faith in Jesus. It's seeing and believing who Jesus is and what he has done. And it's trusting him, responding to him, receiving the gift of eternal life that he gives to his people. Lies lead to death. That is why Paul was so vehemently confronting Elimus. Elimus wasn't just debating with Paul and Barnabas about plausibilities. No, he was opposing the gospel. He was doing everything he could to keep Sergius away from the path of life. He was selfishly trying to maintain his own power and his own influence at the cost of another man's soul. You can see why Paul's words are so appropriate then. Paul is not spewing insults so much as he's exposing a fraud in his wickedness. He calls Elimus an enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, because that's exactly who he was. God, in his providence, had brought the word of the gospel to Sergius. Think about this. The, the Holy Spirit called Saul and Barnabas out from the church in Antioch. And then we're told in verse 4 that he led them. They took them to Cyprus. They did the work he had laid out for them to do. And then he provides this amazing opportunity to be standing before the Roman proconsul to tell him about the gospel as well. This is God's work. Elimus, on the other hand, instead of rejoicing in the truth, had decided to try and make himself a barrier to it. He wasn't just an agent of deception. He was an agent of death. He, he, was, he is the robber that Jesus describes in John 10 who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus, on the other hand, says that he has come so that his sheep may have life and have it abundantly. And we see that he did just that very thing in the court of the proconsul. 
And before we look at what happened to Elimus, I just want to turn your attention uh, uh, to the end of our passage in verse 12 and really the end result of what happened because of this, this display of God's power. Luke says that Sergius was astonished by the teaching of the Lord, but more importantly, he says that he believed. He saw the lies that had been sold him by Elimus for the thing that they were. And he saw Christ for the king that he is. And he believed, and that promise of life became his, just as it comes to all who put their faith and trust in Jesus. In John 1, we're told that Jesus, the Word, was with God in the beginning, and that he was God. We are told that all things were made through him. And then John goes on to say that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He continues and says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we look at Sergius, we see a man who came to hear the gospel of life. And he heard it because the spirit of life called two men to come and speak to him about everything God had accomplished through Jesus. And as such, we see the power of God at work as death gave way to life in the light of Christ. Last week, we talked about what it means to be a missional church. And I, I submitted to you that a missional church is a church that is committed to living out the Great Commission which Jesus gave to his people, which is namely to make disciples. We're called to speak the truth in a world that has for too long been in the grip of Satan's lies. We're called to speak words of life to those who are caught in this living death bound for judgment. We do not claim to be wise in and of ourselves. We are not trying to profit off of others or to grow in power and influence. We go and we speak because the glory of Christ and the love of Christ compels us to go. We go because we too were once dead in our trespasses and sins. But Christ made us alive. And he's given us his spirit, the same spirit who brought conviction and faith to the heart of Sturgius Paulus. So friends, let us be bold to speak this message. Not because we're trying to grow a, a following for ourselves, but because we want others to have the same true joy and the same true life that comes with knowing Christ who conquered death through his own death and broke the power of death through his victorious resurrection. Now, it's really hard to separate the biblical ideas of light and life from each other. And that's because part of being made alive in Christ is to have our minds and our hearts opened to the truth. It's in the light of Christ that we find life. And that brings us to our final point this morning, which is the victory of the spirit of light over the spirit of darkness. Paul didn't just reveal Elimus' true identity. He also spoke a curse of judgment on him. Now that's significant. Because this is what sorcerers were known for having power to do. For the right price, they would pronounce a curse on your enemies. Think of Balaam from the Old Testament, right? You go hire a soothsayer like that to go say something against your enemy, and hopefully you can undo them. That's what Elimus has been doing. You might think that Elimus was a man to be feared for that reason, but the reality was that he had no power at all. 
And we see that in verse 11. Having exposed him, Paul then says, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, Luke says, mist and darkness fell on him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So here's what's happened. The false prophet, whose lies and deception had blinded other men to the truth, has now had his own curse come upon himself. Elimus got to experience the true power of God come upon him in such a way that it emptied him entirely. This is really a pitiful scene. Elimus' spiritual blindness was allowed to show itself to the world through a physical blindness. While he once enjoyed the lofty position maintaining the company of the proconsul, he fell from glory. And then he had to live at the mercy of others. Uh, but when you think about it, I, actually I think we have to say God was really merciful to Elimus. God did not lay his hand against him so as to kill him, though he could have by all rights, he should have by all rights, we might argue. But God showed him mercy. And furthermore, God showed him mercy in not striking him with a permanent blindness, only a temporary, a temporary one. Still, we have to say judgment came swiftly. And this was the key step that convinced Sergius that the gospel was in fact true. See, there was a battle going on in this court for a man's soul. But it was not a struggle between two equally matched forces. I think some people imagine that the devil is God's counterpart, or at least Jesus' counterpart. That couldn't be further from the truth. We don't live in a dualistic world. This is our Father's world. And Satan may be may be permitted to do certain things right now, but he is not on par with God. He is not on par with Christ. We see that right here. The gospel came to Sergius in word, and it came in power. He heard God's word proclaimed to him, and then he got to see the power of Christ put on display before him in a way he had never anticipated. So while Elimus lost his physical sight, Sergius gained spiritual sight. For too long he had sat enraptured under the false power of the false words of a pretender. And now he saw true power in the gospel of the true Jesus. And the spell was broken on his heart. Spiritual life came into him and a new heart was given to him and as I read this I just can't help but think about King Theoden and Lord of the Rings when he is like released and life floods into his veins and now he's able to make decisions as a good king that's what God does he opens our eyes he removes the poison from us and we're for the first time we get to truly live that's the power of the spirit that we see here and that's the same power that's been at work in our lives these are some amazing I hope you like this is not an imagine this is a true story and so I hope that you're amazed by this Sergius there's a lot of amazing things here Sergius first of all is the highest ranking official who's been mentioned to us who's believed the gospel to this point he was directly appointed by the Roman Senate to serve in this way he had power and authority but Christ had set his sights on him and he was not beyond his power when we pray for authorities who have authority over us, there's not one of them who is beyond Jesus' power. 
Another thing to notice, but this is the second time that the gospel has come up against someone who claimed to have spiritual insight, claimed to be someone who was enslaving people to a lie. Remember Simon Magus back in Samaria. Elimah is claimed to be somebody, but he crumbles like a house of cards before the true power of the gospel. This is, this, this is and, and this, I think, furthermore, this being the first time we've seen a real missionary effort by the church, we might ask ourselves what the gospel was going to do when it came to a, a truly Gentile place. But we see very clearly that the power of the truth triumphed over the lies and the falsehoods of Satan no matter where it was. What's more, we see how essential and critical the Holy Spirit is to this work we've been called to do because all of this was the result of his work, not the result of Paul and Barnabas. It was not Paul's fire that made Elimus go blind. It was the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples it was necessary for him to go to the Father so that the Holy Spirit would come to us. This is the reason that the gospel was so effective. People were coming to saving faith because the Holy Spirit was at work. The point is this. In a world that says that all truths are true, or that just flat out rejects whether truth can be known, we can confidently share this message of the truth with others. And we can do that trusting that God is going to work in powerful ways to open the eyes of the blind and to breathe life into dead hearts. We can dedicate ourselves to sharing this message with courage, confronting Satan's lies, trusting God to work, because we are assured by our Savior that He is with us and that He has all authority. He holds the keys of life and death and he is working to call his lambs to himself. He will not lose one. May God give us courage to speak the truth of the gospel this week. And may he shine the light of the gospel into the darkness through that testimony in such a way that people take notice of the glory of our King. And may he continue to overcome death through the power of the spirit of life. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to get overwhelmed sometimes with the news and to think to ourselves, this is beyond redemption. But that really is to undermine the value of the sacrifice of Christ. I, I love that, that quote that Spurgeon has when he said that the one drop of Jesus' blood was pure enough and effective enough to atone for the sins of an infinite number of universes. And we have gotten to experience the power of his blood for us, a binding covenant that assures us of the salvation that we have in him. Father, thank you for loving us even while we were yet sinners. Thank you for reaching for what was most dear to you. Thank you for sending Christ to come and to reign in victory through his death and resurrection. And Father, we pray as we eagerly long for the day when you will place all of his enemies under his feet as a footstool, and as we rejoice in his victory, Father, we pray that you will hold us in faithfulness, that your spirit would equip us, and that we would be, we would be faithful even as he is faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.